BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, I'm Molly Sims. And I'm Amisha Gormley. We're two girls obsessed with one thing, beauty. beauty. And by that, we mean everything that makes you look and feel beautiful. We're calling on our favorite health experts, industry insiders, and friends to answer all your beauty questions. With a drink in hand. Definitely with a drink in hand. <laughs> You're listening to Lipstick on the Rim with Molly Sims. I read this really interesting article a few months ago in Inc. magazine that I I actually haven't stopped thinking about. It was called, I was completely burned out. Then a three-word setting on my iPhone changed everything. And no, it wasn't do not disturb. That was the one that said low power mode, mm-hmm. right? Get into low power mode. I sent the article to Elizabeth, who helps us produce magic over here at Lipstick on the Rim. And I li- we literally, both of us could not stop thinking about it. The idea was to put yourself on low power mode, not quit or fully shut off, but just, just take a step back and turn everything down a notch. Today, I am so happy. Em and I are... And she's friends with Amy Griffin. If you're friends with Amy Griffin, then you're lucky. We have the ultimate expert when it comes to turning stress into strength. Dr. Samantha Boardman is a New York-based positive psychiatrist committed to fixing what's wrong and building what's right. She has over 15 years of experience. She has a website called The Positive Prescription, and her newsletter, The Dose, shares practical and achievable ways to enhance your life. She's smart as shit. Harvard, MD Cornell, four-year residency in psychiatry, Will Cornell Medical College. She's a regular contributor to the Huffington Post, Psychology Today. She's written for New York Magazine, Refinery. She wrote an incredible book, which we all have to get. And you guys can't see the cover, but it's flowers and boxing gloves. And it says everyday vitality, turning stress into strength. Samantha, Dr. Boardman, should we call you? Because you're fabulous and a doctor. And we love a doctor. We're so happy that you're with us. Thank you. And after last year's stress, we need strength. So give yeah. us the right. We had a shit year last year, Samantha, Dr. Boardman. For sure. It was uh it was a test in uh well, it was for sure a test in positivity, but we are really interested and I we have so many questions but we really want to know like how you got into positive psychiatry because it's a little different from regular psychiatry and we're both at our base level positive people we lean in we love our life but it's been stressful (laughs) For sure. No, and positive psychiatry is something that's relatively new in the field. And, you know, I originally became a psychiatrist. I went into psychiatry. I went to medical school because I was so interested in in sort of what makes life worth living, like those big, big questions that like, you know, kind of what are we all doing here? Why are we all doing that? And then pretty quickly, at least in psychiatry residency, you get very good at, at you know, trying to fix problems and, you know, figure out what's wrong with somebody and make them feel less bad or bring them back to baseline. And, you know, how many milligrams do I prescribe for that? What could I do to, you know, sort of reduce your symptoms? And 
I was out in practice and seeing a patient I'd been seeing for a little while who was a little bit, you know, she was didn't qualify for a clinical diagnosis of depression, but she certainly was far from thriving. And she came into my office one day and, you know, and said, you know what, all you make me do, like all we do in this room is talk about what's wrong with me. And we don't focus enough on anything else. And you know what? Sometimes I mean, even in having a good day and I have to think about what's going wrong. And that's what happens in here. And it really was this wake up call for me. And I knew she was right, ultimately, that I'd gotten so good at kind of fixing problems and trying to minimize symptoms that I wasn't focused enough on the science of health or well-being. And I ended up going back to school to get a degree in applied positive psychology, where we studied optimism, where we learned about post-traumatic growth, where we learned about resilience. These were not words I heard in my medical training at all. And it was really instead of looking at pathogenesis, that is the study of disease, it was this idea of looking at salutogenesis, which is the creation of health. And that you can do both and you they go hand in hand. And I think I'd, I'd been overly fixated and on the one and with positive psychiatry, it's really focusing as much on what's wrong is also building what's strong and looking at what people's strengths are to help them navigate the challenges that they're facing and not just focusing on what went wrong. It's what are you looking forward to? How are you going to actually close that intention action gap and do that thing? I, I mean, I love your podcast. I'm a huge fan and I love that you talk a lot about action steps all the time and actually, okay, so what are you doing to you know change that? And this idea that happiness isn't just in your head, it's really in like the actions you take and the connections you make and how you participate. Will you delve a little deeper into that? Because there's nothing worse than someone telling someone, why don't you just be happy? Uh, mm. I've had that happen to me. And, and, and again, I think there's a difference between being grateful and being happy. But it was kind of a like, oh, your life is this or this. And I think it's a slippery slope. There's so much pressure, I think, right now to be happy and put a smile on things and sort of rainbows and unicorns of, you know, and everyone does seem so happy. And, you know, you scroll through social media and you look at every this, you know, highlight reel of people's lives and this idea that it you know, a, a professor at Stanford has called it duck syndrome. This idea that we're constantly seeing other people like smoothly gliding across the surface of the water and everything looks like smooth sailing for them and they're having the easiest time, but we have no idea how they're like paddling like crazy underneath the surface. And, you know, when we're seeing it all the time and there's we're seeing happy people and we're seeing, you know, there's so much perfectionism today in the way, especially in women, this idea of holding themselves to these super, super high standards and also holding others to those standards in this unforgiving way that they're approaching themselves and, and their own lives. And the thing is with sort of toxic positivity, I think we're asking so much of people to be happy all the time. And we have this intolerance of just life can be really hard. And people have really bad days and, you know, we can have these negative emotions, but how we're reacting to that, I think positive psychology and positive psychiatry has a lot to say about how we handle these challenges. It's not saying put a smiley face on it or, you know, you know, that your rainbows and unicorns, but what can you do? How can we help you? How can you empower yourself to actually use your strengths to figure out what those are? to help you actually tap into your values and use those to tackle the challenges you're facing. And that, you know, sometimes we can have good stress also, like not all stress is bad. And that's always an important thing to highlight. I think this idea that even work is always going to be fulfilling or smooth sailing and that every day is going to be awesome. I mean, and we've sort of pathologized any stress in people's lives. But, you know, sometimes we're at our best when we are a little bit, you know, when we're pushed a little bit to the brink, we feel really like we've accomplished something, we've done something meaningful. And there's a ton of research out there that shows how when we're putting effort into activities and feeling that we are, you know, putting ourselves out there in some way that we're actually emboldened by it because these really build competence and the three essential components of well-being, and this is according to self-determination theory, is that you feel connected, that is, you feel loved, and that you love others. 
A second one being that you have a sense of competence, that you have, you know, the ability to rise to a challenge when, when it, you know, you're, you're faced with that. And the third one being a sense of autonomy, that is a sense of personal control and agency over your life. And I think when those three pillars of well-being are so essential and how can we build them in, you know, employees and companies, how do we build them in schools with students, with children, with our friends and our lives? And that's what I'm really committed to doing and really what my book is about. I love that as three pillars of well-being for children as well. Like I actually think that that's something that's really applicable to all ages, but really even kids. Like sometimes I think when I see my my kids having autonomy specifically and like mastering, like we're so used to wanting to do everything for our kids. But when you give them that autonomy, you really kind of see them flourish. Absolutely. And there's a ton of research around this and this idea of actually giving them free time to play, not just having all these structured activities. And I think it takes a lot of pressure off of parents as well. You know, you can give them sometimes, especially young kids, like a frying pan to bang around. Like you don't need to have these organized activities for kids to do all the time. Like we get burned out, they get burned out with that as well. But also like the kids, my daughter, when she was little, had said to me, like she'd baked her first cake and it was the best cake she'd ever eaten. And again, that sense of agency, that ability to contribute to something. We see this in kids as young as two years old. They want to be able, like, let me do it by myself. And that idea of, you know, it's so hard to sit on our hands and just like watch them have difficulties, but also how we model challenges is really important when even a toddler sees a parent struggling with something and persevering. Then when you give them like a toy to, that like requires them to take something apart, they're more much more likely to persevere. So when we're exemplars and they see us, like how we deal with our frustration, how we, you know, tackle a challenge, you know, we can sort of, you know, curse, we could walk out of the room, we could throw it down, but how we tackle it really matters and sort of shows them how they can do it. And giving them that agency and that autonomy to make decisions for themselves and to, you know, even walk around the block, go do an errand, you know, do something even, you know, when they're, I, I let my kid walk to school in New York City when he was eight years old and people thought I was crazy, but it was so emboldening for him to be able to do that. And, you know, when I didn't want him to have his phone at the time, because I was worried he would look at it. So, you know, to be able to have that sense and he came back like a puffed up penguin, you know, and I think there's really, you know, to give our kids agency and competence, they have a lot of love a lot of the time, but those two other sides of it are also really important. You're making me want to let my kid walk to I'm like, she's she's eight, she'll be nine in the summer. She We live in like Summit, New Jersey, like the most bucolic little town. And she's like, can I walk to school? And I'm like, no, I'm driving you. And I'm like, but it, that's more my controlling thing. I love nothing more than discovering a new brand. Now, this is a fun one. Ruggable. They're a machine washable rug brand that's stain resistant, and they do everything from area rugs to runners to doormats and bath mats. They come in all different sizes and are made to order, so there is no need to stress about getting the wrong size. What I love is that their rugs are designed to withstand whatever life throws at them, dirt, dust, spills, and even pet accidents. Ruggable also excels at amazing collabs that are super fun. They've worked with so many impressive names, Jonathan Adler, Iris Atfeld, as well as one that's a little bit more kid-friendly. My kids are obsessed with the Disney ones, Star Wars, Marvel. They also have so many different textures to choose from, shag, plush, faux hide. And yes, they're all machine washable. It's seriously game-changing. They even have patented rug system that comes in two pieces, a lightweight rug cover, and a non-slip rug pad. It's so easy to detach and reattach whenever you want to clean it. And trust me, we end up washing a lot of rugs in this household. But now I never have to worry about anything really staining, and it gives me, I hate to say it, major peace of mind. Especially if you have kids and pets like we do, and more pets coming soon, Lord help me. These are the rugs for you. But I shouldn't put all the blame on my kids and Ruby. I like to drink a little red wine too. And obviously, I never spill. Kidding. Visit Ruggable.com and use code LIPSTICK at checkout for 10% off your purchase. Again, that's code LIPSTICK for 10% off your order on Ruggable. From Vogue, The Run-Through. 
a new weekly podcast featuring the most riveting news in fashion and culture with Vogue's take on the big stories. I'm still working on my day-to-day. I've been doing what I've been doing for 40 years. Fashion in relation to sports, culture, and politics. We were designing this movie in the middle of a pandemic. I wanted to do something special and something that was probably more linked to a cultural than just fashion. From the red carpets and runways to political and cultural events. Bringing you undertold stories from around the globe. I always say Ghana because I want people to know how possible it is to create amazing things there with voices rarely accessible and uncommonly authentic on this season of the run through serena williams michaela cole chelsea manning and more the run through with vogue i'm chloe mal i'm cho minaldi available now wherever you get your podcasts i just wanted to split the episode into two parts i mean and we can have you on for three more times if we need to we have a lot to talk about i want to split it into burnout And then Mm -hmm. we'll get into how to increase your vitality and fulfillment and have that feeling of being interconnected. But I just wanted to read this quote quickly. It was reported in 2022 that seven in 10 workers experience burnout and the findings show that anyone at work suffering from burnout is at a higher risk of low morale, being less engaged and making more mistakes Therefore, leaving their company, leaving the situation they're in. Forbes recently called burnout an international crisis. So let's talk about in general and kind of start broad. What what does it stem from? And then is the result of the burnout, are we in chronic stress and we don't even know it? It's no, it's it's and it's important too, like to that idea of like what is burnout versus depression. But burnout is classically defined as this triad, right, of three things: exhaustion, physical and mental exhaustion. Then the second one is like a lack of efficacy, like a lack of you know sense of productivity in what you're doing and gets to get something done. And the third one is cynicism, like getting really sort of cynical and negative about what you're doing. And so that's how it's classically been defined, and it's classically been defined in the workplace, in occupational contexts. But I think we're having like a much bigger and broader discussion these days about burnout and how it, it can exist. It's really differentiating it from what depression is, is usually it's a problem of culture and an occupational context that we're seeing it in, whereas you know, when people have depression, it's much more internally driven. And here's what can differentiate the two as well, is when you see somebody like who, who, when you remove them from that context of where they are, if they're, you know, it's on the weekends that they feel much better, that they're much more, that they are, they like have interest in their activities, they enjoy being around their family, they are smiling again, they have energy, they have vigor, they have vitality. That's when you know it's not, it's really related to their circumstances. There's this quote that you sort of say, burnout is not a problem in your head, it's a problem in your circumstances. And that's how you can sort of figure out the two. And, you know, there there are so many different, you know, burnout can lead to depression. Typically, depression does not lead to burnout. It doesn't, the arrows don't work both ways. And the way that we talk so much, though, I mean, in, in burnout cultures, and you see this in companies, like I think it's always almost revering sacrifice. Like when I was in medical school, I had like the deepest, darkest circles under my eyes. And I wouldn't trust anybody who didn't. Like there was another resident in my group and, you know, we would work all night and you'd work into the following morning. And at 11 o'clock, she always looked kind of well-rested and like her hair was like in a neat ponytail. And you know, I looked like I'd been through a washing machine by then. And I almost like didn't trust her. I was like, I bet she's taking naps at night. Like, I bet there's something because there's no way that she could be getting she's away taking with Adderall. I'm going to learn how to prescribe that. No, keep going. <laughs> no, but it was exactly that. And this idea that, that the culture that I inhabited at the time was one of such sacrifice. Anything outside of work was sort of seen as a distraction, something that should be, you know, penalized in some way. It's like working at Vogue. Probably, yes. Like your life You go is to Harvard. Some of us go to Vogue. No, no, I'm just joking. No, no, but but it's true that like when, when a culture demands all of you, you know, when it feels all consuming and that you're all in and every single part of your life has to be a part of it. Whereas I think in healthier cultures, and there is more of an awareness around this today, it's that you are really judged by like your your 
the commitments that you keep, that you show up, that you're engaged, but you also like hobbies are encouraged, outside activities, people honor your, you know, your social life and that, that you are more than that thing that you do. And it's so valuable as well that you, you aren't just what, you know, what you do every, your, your, your work, you're far, you're a bigger human being than that. I see moms getting burned out. And they're the best moms, like, and some aren't the best moms, but most are the moms who are like badass moms trying to constantly juggle whatever it is. I I can see it. And I can also see when moms don't know literally how to fix the problem. They don't know what to do less of or more of, or they don't have, they have that constant mom guilt, push and pull, but ultimately it's burnout. Yeah. No. And I think, you know, there is this relationship between perfectionism and burnout too, is this pressure to be that perfect mom. I always think of it as like the holiday card mom, you know, the one who, you know, has got all these pictures of the perfect children and they're winning, they've got their medals and their trophies and that kind of thing. And, you know, with, with parent burnout, you know, obviously, it's slightly different than that exhaustion we talked about, the lack of self-efficacy and the um, and the cynicism that goes into it. With parents, you often see them like just you see them just they're they're constantly comparing themselves to how they used to be as a mother, you know, or and that self-comparison with other moms who seem to be doing that thing so well and just to be having that, you know, that that smooth sailing that they imagine their those other parents were having. And that they're just feeling, they're kind of just fed up with their role and they're just also start to emotionally distance from their children. And I think a lot of it happens in the context of this need to be perfect and to do everything right. And, you know, so much evidence we show, like that shows that just kind of being a, a good enough mom, like a good enough parent, showing that you love them, being honest with your kids, you know, and I think there is this pressure socially to, to even show our kids everything's perfect. And actually to, to, to be open with them, to say like, I am frustrated and this is how I'm trying to handle it. Or I apologize for the way I spoke to you earlier and acknowledging our emotions, sharing what we're going through with them, not oversharing. And obviously it's age dependent, but being truthful with them about kind of what's hard for us and what's not. And maybe that thing is just going to overextend me. No, I can't have you do that third activity that you would like to be doing. I can't be pulled in there. And also with parents, what you really see it making a difference in is when they like, if a mom has a supportive partner or has a friend or a neighbor, is this idea of, you know, let me have like one night a week that I'm just going to do me. And maybe it's like, you know, maybe they go and they do a Zumba class or maybe they do something else. But it is a very like American idea that like you're really parenting on your own. You know, like we don't have neighbors or friends who will just be like, oh, I'll watch your kids as you go downstairs and go take care of that thing. Or as you go, everything is on that individual. And it's really, really hard. And I think sometimes it's really hard for for parents to even talk about it. And I've noticed that with many moms before is that they feel like they're almost guilty and that they they can't talk about how burnout is like that, that they feel burned out, like there's something really wrong with them or they're a bad mom if they're feeling that way. But there are ways to help them. And I think it's it's especially in having more support in a, around them. There's a model that the University of Pennsylvania came up with, with to kind of help with burnout called like the demand support model of burnout. And it's really kind of looking at the demands that your culture, like as a mom that you're, you're having, what could you outsource? Where could you, you know, maybe get help? Then looking at the, like, what do you have control over in some way? Like, what can you change? What can you shift? And the last thing is really reaching out for support that is actually so hard to ask for, but often what, like really what the doctor ordered. There's such a negative stigma around having help with your kids. And I think that's something that, you know, to your point about burnout, it's, it takes a village, right? So if you live somewhere where you don't have family, like I, my mom passed away over eight years ago, three weeks after my was born. So, you know, I, I never had her around. She would have been the most hands-on grandma you ever met. She would have been in there changing diapers. That wasn't in the cards for me, unfortunately. And, you know, I grew up in Canada. I was living in New York City. 
my mother-in-law lives in Buffalo and she's much older and she'd raised four kids. And she was like, I'm done. Like, I, I, I love you. I'll play with the kids when they're older. And so for us, it was, we had to have help. And there is such a stigma around having a nanny, having a baby nurse, having all of that. They'll be like, oh, I don't have any help. But you do have help. You, Your mother is living with you. Like, that is <laughs> so help. True. Like, it, there's such a judging, like, and I, I'm like, Emisha, it's like, there's no way, like, I treat my nanny like she is family. My daughter writes letters to her. She's been with me since, I don't even know, eight, seven, eight years. I, I could not do it without her. And I am not ashamed to say that I... I think sometimes, and I, a few of my friends are like this, they're like, oh, they want to like be the martyr and do it all and make it more difficult for themselves. And like, that is not the advice Emisha and I give. We're like, no. You're doing your children a disservice. Like I, my biggest, and, and I miss it because I'm here in New Jersey right now and I'm not in LA, but like my, I come back refueled, recharged when I get to go out to LA for you know, a couple of days and I get to hang with my best friend. We get to go out for a few nice meals, even sitting on the airplane with no one talking to me and reading my iPad. I am like the happiest camper. And I come back and I'm much more excited to be home and doing laundry and making dinner and packing lunches because I feel like I've had that minute. And that's too many women become martyrs and they think that that's like what makes them a better mom. And it's like, it, it, I do feel like there's such a, I don't know, I don't want to be like women supporting women, but like that has to change. That like conversation dynamic has to shift because it's not doing anyone any favors, you know, and, and it's, it affects your kids ultimately. It just well, does. I think that's such a good point, but it, it does affect your it affects the kids most of all, but that, that tremendous pressure, though, to kind of do it all. And there's something that happened, and I'm looking into this with a friend of mine. In the 1990s, there was something that happened in terms of parenting. Parents used to spend, like, on average six hours a week with their kids. It hockey-sticked up. Like, there was, so they went to spending 20 hours a week with their kids. And I don't know if this was anxiety about, you know, am I going to be able to get my kid into college one day? Or maybe like the the life I was hoping for my children isn't, they're not going to be able to have. So I, if I spend more time with them and I play baby Einstein to them and I read parenting magazine and that sort of when all of those exploded, that they will be, you know, on their way to, you know, Harvard or Yale and otherwise they're going to Rikers, you know, like this kind of split. It was this either or ideal and it's spending more and more time on your kids is going to somehow make them happier. And it hasn't, is the bottom line. And that colliding with social media, I mean, we see kids today are, especially young girls, are really unhappy. And we end up spending so much time on our children and less time with our children in a way. Like there's so much kind of work that's going into it. And to your point, I think when you do have that support and help, you're able to spend like better quality time with them. And Harvard Business School did an interesting study looking at working moms and how like your kids are just fine. You know, like there that idea that, you know, oh, I didn't bake those cookies from scratch, you know, for the bake sale or whatever. Like they're fine. I spoke with a great developmental psychologist named Dr. Noah Larcy. He's in L.A. Phenomenal. And he said to me, don't treat them like they're fragile because you're not. The moment you start to feel guilty, stop. He didn't say anything else. He just looked at me and I'm like, okay. You know, I didn't cry, but like, I was like, okay, because we have this, t- I, 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 Emish is probably better than me. I, I have a tendency to, like when you said you let him walk at eight years old in New York City, like that gives me severe angst. I know it's bad. I'm just, and I'll come see you soon. But I do have a tendency to, I treat them fragile. But I think you made such a good point. And it, it actually happened to me. I want to say maybe it was last week. I lost my cool. You know, mornings getting out the door with three kids. I have three girls. And my one daughter, my baby, the youngest, happens to just want to dress a very particular way. And she fights me the hardest. And I lost She's my cool. She's a dragon slayer. Dr. She Dr. is. She'll be my toughest. She, she will take no prisoners. I will never have to worry about her in her teenage years. However, now she drives me to the brink of insanity. And I just lost my cool on all my kids. 
And Maeve, my oldest, was sitting next to me in the car and I was driving her to school. And I looked over at her and I said, you know what, Maeve, I'm really sorry. You didn't deserve that. And the smile on her face that lit up and she looked at me and she goes, it's okay, mom. It's okay. I mean, I like could cry right now because she was just so, it meant so much to her that I didn't just own my power as a mom and go, I can lose my shit. I'm okay. I'm a mom. I can, and it just bulldoze past it. But the fact that I said to her, I was sorry. And I, and I, I shouldn't have yelled that way. Cause she, she was, she didn't do anything. You really, it is something that you realize, like when you tell your kids you've made a mistake, that's actually teaching them a lesson because they do learn. They learn then that when they make a mistake, they can just own up to it. Absolutely. No, and that's what it's the, like the, the crux of building resilience. And, you know, that this idea that, you know, when you ask parents, like, what do you want for your kids? You want them to be happy, but you also want them to be able to bend and to be flexible and to be anti-fragile. And like, what are... There's really interesting research on kids who know their family history, like they know about their grandparents, and their parents, and who are able to tell like they're one of like three types of stories. Sometimes kids hear that story of like, everything used to be good and now it sucks, you know, or everything like used to be bad and now it's awesome. Or the third type is the oscillating narrative. Like things were really hard for your grandparents and then they got, you know, better and then things were hard again. And then your parents met here and then things were difficult. So they understand that things do change and that there are challenges and that there are triumphs and things go from hard to easy and from easy to hard. And, And it's so important. And they also realize they're not the central characters in the story. They're a chapter in there. And you're sort of decentering them in a really healthy way. Well, Stuber and I were fighting over the holidays, like every probably married couple in America. But, you know, Brooks was like, are you guys getting a divorce? I'm like, no, dad and I, because we don't normally argue, but I don't know, maybe we're having words or whatever. And it was just so interesting. I'm like, he just jumped to divorce. Yes. You know, yeah. and I was like, no, I love daddy. And daddy and I aren't agreeing and mom's right, but it's fine. <laughs> but we're good, we're not getting a divorce. But I, it was just so interesting. And I asked, you know, my therapist, Bronwyn, She's like, don't don't argue in front of them. And I don't normally, but I explain. I'm like, no, we're not getting a divorce. Like, I was very forthcoming about dad and I are disagreeing about something. You know, I would actually argue that it is really beneficial to argue in front of your kids because they're always watching us, even when we think they're in the other room. Maybe like, when you don't say F you to your kid, you're screaming at the top <laughs> of your lungs. You know, maybe that's a little bit different. But they are there. Their eyeballs, their ears are everywhere. And actually how you're modeling arguments and debate is really healthy. And there is evidence, though, that kids who are used to having kind of debates at the dinner table also, you know, that whole bringing that idea of like argue as though you're right, but listen as though you're wrong to those conversations and having constructive debates, having them watch somebody change their mind even in the say, you know, in the face of evidence or say like, wait, that made me think a little bit differently about that. And, you know, okay, I see your point, but what about this? Like, if we can actually have those civilized debates, like around the table, you know, maybe they can have that with their friends in school. And maybe as they grow up to be adults, that we can have these constructive conversations that don't just have to be sort of shut down while I'm right and you're wrong. And, you know, we don't have to change anyone's mind, ideally, but maybe we could make, you know, help them think a little bit more expansively or differently in some way. Like with your patients, how do you build and boost resilience? Are there any, I know there's not tips or tricks, but is there, are there any ways that you, when you're working with your, your patients that you, let's try this. Is there a three-step, a two-step, a 10-step, a no-step? Yeah. I mean, I think like I often think about it in like three buckets of kind of your connections that you're making with others, because that's such an important part of our, of our lives. And I think psychology has become very interiorized. Like this whole idea of like, what's like happiness is all in your head. How are you? How are you feeling in every way? And Every piece of research we have shows that, you know, happiness doesn't just come from within, it really comes from with. And that, you know, how are you with others? I just saw this quote the other day. It said, be wherever your feet are. You know, and I like that idea of like, we're often so distracted and so in a, like a different place. And that idea of get, like that kind of gift of presence 
having what's called active constructive responding. Like when your kid tells you something or your friend tells you something, you know, how do we respond to them? And there's a lot of evidence that shows that when we respond, you know, with that openness and kind of these three words, tell me more, you know, and that we're listening to them we're actively listening to what they're saying. We're responding to them. That gift of presence is so valuable. And that we're not also ruminating with them. And ruminating is a really slippery slope that can fall into depression. And we can tend to ruminate on our own. You know, when you have that like ticker tape in your mind of like, why did I do this? Why did I say that? Why, you know, what's going to happen? That type of the crawl you see on the news, that's rumination like embodied. You mean everything breaking news? that goes across Literally. everything is breaking news everything being breaking news, you, it's breaking news you know it, I mean? completely and it gives you a panic attack and that's sort of what's happening i think in our minds a lot when we're ruminating and we can co-ruminate with people sometimes i think parents do it with their kids like what happened to you again at school you tell me what that awful thing that that person did and then you know their other parent comes home you tell you know your parent you tell your brother what happened and when we're just constantly ruminating and going over something or co-ruminating, that can be an on-ramp actually to depression. And learning how to what's called like self-distance is really important there. So self-distancing is this idea of like when you're not like immersing yourself in your emotions and you think like, what, you know, what would my future self think about this? Or what would I tell a friend in this situation? How would they handle that? Because that gets the person kind of out of their like stewing in these emotions and into like a place of action and possibility in some way. And that, that, so I started with, you asked me about resilience. Connection is so important, how we're building it with others and giving them sort of our full attention, our presence, that we're actually making an effort, that we're expressing ourselves, even with gratitude. People often think that oh, they know, you know, Em and Molly know how grateful I am that I went on their show. Like, no, I need to say it. I mean, I need to write you guys a note to express it. Like, to that these actions actually kind of, they, they don't just, maybe you'll feel good, but I'll probably feel good once I write that to you. And so gratitude is a verb, I always say to people, and it can help build connections. The second part of resilience is what are you contributing to? Where do you feel like you're adding value in some way? The best antidote that we have for stress is doing something for somebody else. We saw that over and over again during the pandemic, lots of studies looking at, at that of people who did something for somebody else when they were feeling down, that they felt that their experience added value to somebody else's life was so protective against the depression that we've seen and the anxiety. And we can go into those studies. And the third part is the third C, we said connecting, contributing. And the third one is when you feel positively challenged. Like when you feel like you're learning something, that there's some even activity that you're doing that is, is stretching you in some meaningful way that your interests and your values dovetail with. When I meet patients for the first time, I'll often say like, you know, tell me what you value most. What are your top, you know, three to five values? And sometimes people have a hard time even thinking about what those are. They're just so busy in their day-to-day -day lives playing whack-a-mole. And then the second part is asking them, you know, so how did you spend Saturday? What did you do with your time? And, you know, kind of going through, well, you know, I you know, woke up and then I was on my phone and then I binge watched the show and then I did this. And like when there's a disconnect between what you value and what you're doing, I think it's very hard to kind of build that resilience muscle because you feel like you're not walking your walk and creating more overlap between the two is a very sort of protective way that you can handle even the challenges that are coming your way. You know, here on Lipstick on the Rim, we try to be as mindful as we can when it comes to clean products, ingredients, anything that's better for ourselves and our environment. Beauty is one thing, of course, but it trickles into so many other applicable areas too. Recently, I started using Caraway, which is an incredible brand of non-toxic kitchenware. I bet you don't even know which of your pans or your pots are even toxic. Their cookware sets have blown up and truly are the perfect staple for any home. You guys are going to love the color assortment they come in. I'm talking everything from cream to navy to sage to paracotta, which is like a beautiful peachy shade, to marigold and rose quartz. Of course, they offer just simple, clean, black or white, but it makes it fun to have an option of a pop of color. Super chic. 
What I love about their non-toxic kitchenware is that they're designed for the modern home and feature a chemical-free ceramic coating so food can be prepared with peace of mind that no hard-to-pronounce compound will leach into your healthy ingredients. All sets come equipped with easy access storage solutions so that no stacking is required. Gone are the days of misplacing your lids. And might I add, everything is super easy to cook on because the surfaces are ceramic. They're naturally slick, meaning you can really cut down on the amount of oil or butter normally required for cooking. We love this in my house. They look great on any range and they make such a great housewarming gift, especially for those friends with a cooking affinity. But the truth is, we all need cookware, so they really are so perfect for anyone and everyone in your life. Visit carawayhome.com slash lipstick. You guys take advantage of this limited time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive. That's right. Exclusive for our listeners only. So visit caraway, C-A-R-A-W-A-Y-H-O-M-E.com slash lipstick and use code lipstick at checkout. Caraway non-toxic cookware made modern. If you could give one piece of advice in terms of what supplements are a must, I would say don't skimp on a multivitamin. It's really, really important. I've been loving Ritual because they have a realistic understanding that it's basically impossible to get all of your nutrients from your diet 100% of the time. So they made a multivitamin that helps you focus on what's important. These are clinically backed multivitamins for women 18 plus with high quality and traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. With nine key nutrients in two capsules per day, their unique Be Let In Oil is even patented. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that USP verified, meaning what's on the label is actually what's in the formula. They're also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Okay, the best part, ready for this? There's a minty essence in every bottle that keeps things fresh and helps make taking your multis every day actually enjoyable. Plus, I really love looking at the bottles. I just do. The capsules are yellow and the bottle is clear and the whole thing is just, just very aesthetically pleasing. It just really is. I love how reliable these are. I really feel like you're in good hands with Ritual. I recommend them to everyone in my life. My kids take the children's gummy, which are delicious and orange. They love. And I sometimes secretly take them too. If you're looking for a new multivitamin, look no further than Ritual. They really are the best of the best, and I think you're going to really love them. Instead of striving for perfect health, aim for supporting foundational health. Great news. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com lipstick to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. I love that. I actually remember listening to, I want to say you did a podcast with, it was Raising Good Humans. Oh and yeah, with Elisa. I listened to it probably about a year ago. I don't know when you recorded it, but I was like binge listening to a bunch. You mentioned the tell me more and talking when, when speaking to your kids, you know, and you're like, hey, you know, not just like, how was your day, but tell me more. And I put that into practice the day after I listened to that episode. And to this day, I still do that with them. They'll answer a question and I'll say, tell me more. And you really realize that A, that makes them feel heard. And I think that applies to adults as well. Like even with my husband, if he's telling me a work story and it's like- We do that. I'm like, tell me everything. Tell me everything. And I think that's such a, it was such a like memorable piece of advice, whatever you want to call it. And I passed it on to a bunch of my friends and was like, this is the best advice that I've heard in such a long time, because it really does, it it pulls out more information as opposed to just checking the box of how was your day? Tell me more. And there are little moments so too. And I'm so glad that 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 sort of worked for you. And I I used to always be that person with my kids of sort of being Debbie Downer, like, you know, or the the voice of reason, like, really, is that such a good idea? Like immediately jump to like, oh, you were going to be in the play, but that's going to take away from school, you know, or whatever those things are. And, and actually sitting on my hands and just saying, tell me more, like, I'd like to hear more about it. And the other sort of tip that a friend of mine had given to me as well was rather than when you're sort of doing something like you're sitting across from them at a table, it's maybe when you're driving them in the car or they're in the, you know, when you're actually synchronizing movement, 
no eye contact is so helpful too, because they just don't feel that, you know, added like judgment and pressure. And yes, we know there's a lot of research about, you know, families that eat together. It's very protective and boosts mental health, but you know, there are other moments and sometimes you just can't do that. And, you know, then you just have to feel, you know, parents feel worse that they're not having, you know, dinner seven days a week with their kids and, you know, baking apple pie for them. But, you know, there are so many different moments, I think, when we can connect with them. It can be like after they like you spit out their toothpaste. Let's talk a little bit about, well, a couple of things. I brought up this thing about low power mode, this article I read. Is there a realistic way to do this to half turn ourselves off to preserve our battery, so to speak. I recently kind of had something happen last year. And because of it, my son ended up taking a moment from one of his sports. We were in the Hamptons with him and he didn't get to go on this trip that he was had supposed to. And I didn't realize like, oh, maybe he wasn't so into that sport until he really he would never say, oh, I like golf over tennis. I like everything the same, Mom. Until last summer, he expressed to my husband and I that he wasn't sure he wanted to do one of the club sports anymore. And we had been feeling as a family very overwhelmed, very torn. Everything can't be about your firstborn. And there are three children, not one. And silently, we were like, we had hoped to God we're get, we were going to make the decision in the spring to kind of figure out. He did it for us, my son. He vocalized it. But it really also made my husband and I also take onus and like, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. Or, oh, we're not going to constantly entertain the entire block or be the carpool. And I love a carpool. I, I die for a carpool. <laughs> but sometimes that can also be more overwhelming and more moving parts as to just be in the car with your own child. Yeah. Yeah. And or like my this is going to sound really sad, but Brooks was like, I'm so happy not to eat in the car all the time. Interesting. Right. Well, I think they feel the pressure sometimes that we inadvertently are putting on them to achieve and for success. My son, when he was six, jumped off his bed and broke his arm and couldn't play hockey. And like I had found myself at like six in the morning up at this like hockey rink in Central Park, you know, with these huge bags of stuff. And it was the best thing that ever happened. Like I realized that he kind of hated it. I knew I hated it. And he, you know, got time to pick his nose, you know, and, and sit around and actually taught himself to read finally that was, you know, long overdue. And so there are, and there's a lot of evidence too, to show how, how kids, you know, we want them to have range also, rather than like focusing these days, you're seeing a lot of like kids, like injuries and young kids they are getting elbow surgeries from overdoing it and squash or certain sports. And that kids actually, it's best when they don't even specialize, but even until like up into high school, you know, because otherwise they just burn out and you really want them gearing up by the time they hit high school rather than having them, you know, when they're in fifth grade on these travel teams and that you're up at four in the morning to shuttle them back and forth and you're shuttling 10 kids back and forth. It's sometimes just too much. And just because somebody's good at something doesn't mean that they should do it. You know, mm -hmm. and so I think we're also worried about squandered talent or opportunities, too. And there are plenty of kids who don't have opportunities who don't, you know, to, to use their talents. But I think for a lot of our kids, though, that that's it's the opposite. And there's so much pressure on them. Pressure and stress on on the parents, too. On the like, family unit. Totally. Yeah. I, do you think I mean, this is just I'm really curious as I live in a town that's very competitive athletically. And I have seen such a trend recently and now like these kids are being committed younger and younger to colleges. And I just wonder, like, it's already stressful enough to be like 17, 18 and applying to college and trying to get in. And that's like, you know, deciding so much of your like fate. So it's, you know, quote unquote, but it, how are kids able to like mentally grasp? Like, is that a lot of, is that too much stress? Is that too much pressure on you know, a 14, 15 year old or, 
Is it actually easier on them because they might not actually grasp, you know, the, the impact it has. Like I just, I, it's, I'm seeing it more and more like my neighbor's ninth, ninth grader is committed to Duke to play baseball ninth grade. I mean, it's awesome. It's huge, but like, that's just to me, like at an age now, we're just, we're getting to a point where these kids are, are their paths are chosen at such a young age now. Look, I mean, I just think from a psychological point of view, it's too early and too much and too overwhelming. And that they, I mean, maybe that's what they like. The, the, the joy of being a kid is kind of changing your mind and being able to do other things. And the idea that you have this set path that now that you are on, and this is if you want to go to this school and you see parents with, you know, young ninth graders already buy those like college stickers, you know, they're putting on their car, or the t-shirt with the kid, the kid's wearing kind of conflating, I think, identity with like where you get into college. And also when you sort of get that message from your parents. Too, I mean, look at the whole varsity blues thing. I mean, and the, the, that was more about the parents than the children. Completely. I mean, they're kind of victims in the whole story of this. I mean, they're participating, but still this idea that you are where you go to college. And I mean, I think that that is, is the, to, to, to kind of conflate that your identity and like, you know, that, that stress you feel and all those people posting on Instagram of like their acceptance letters or these parents posting them on Instagram too, I think is a little bit, you know, it, it, it's again, reminding the kid, even though my parents might say they don't care, but actually they really do. And the kids are so attuned, even from a pretty young age of our hypocrisy, you know, mm. the kids were like, yeah, my parents were always saying to get off the phone, but they're, the moment they pick me up at school, they're on their phones, you know, or like, they're always talking to their friends, but they tell me to put my phone away. Like they, they spot our hypocrisy or they're like, they say they don't care why I go to college. It's the only thing that I, I ever hear my mom talking about. And so I think we have to be like, that's where I think you really have to kind of walk your walk a little bit as a family and say, like, what are our family values? What do we adhere to? Like, what matters to us? And how are we going to make decisions based on that, on our moral compass? Like, what does it mean to be, you know, a boardman? Like, you know, how 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 are we doing that? And what what is in line with our values? And to make those bigger decisions kind of around the family value system. Yeah, I think that's, you know, Great advice. That's great advice because I've done it. I mean, Emisha and I use, and to be honest, we use sports to not have boredom, to not get into drugs. Like, I don't care what sports he does. Again, I do like ones more than others, but I do care about him having something to do, something to be a part of. So that mm. on a Saturday night or a Friday night, he's not smoking pot and getting drunk. Yeah. And for me, I, I have three girls. I want it for confidence. Like I really, I see these athletic girls. I see them. They have a confidence about them that they're, they're the camaraderie that comes with being on a team. I love, but you know, I don't know. I mean, again, my oldest didn't want to do soccer. She's now obsessed with it. You know, she might not love it. I don't know. Down the road, I'm not going to force it down her throat, but she has to do something, you know, and that's uh, idle hands is the, the, that expression, like that's what worries me. But I also agree. Like, I think you can't make them do something. And I'm certainly, I mean, by no means is it going to be, you know, you have to go to this school or although, you know, you just, I do think you're right. It was my friend, Angela Duckworth, who wrote a wonderful book called Grit. And she had said, like, everybody in the family, she calls it the hard thing rule. And everybody has to do one hard thing. And this idea that, you know, maybe like one of her daughters, it was cooking. Like, she cooked for the family. Like, she was really into baking. And that was her hard thing. Another one of her kids was really into sports. And, you know, Angela and her husband's hard thing was work. But this idea of actually like just doing one thing that, and, and if you do commit, like if you are doing something like finish out that semester, finish out that whatever there's no quitting in the middle of anything that you've got to kind of complete that hard thing that you're doing. But interesting, like your point about sports is, I think we often talk about kids and that's so protective, but there's a lot of research that shows how as adults, how like the sports that people like live the longest or the happiest when they do it involve others. You know, mm -hmm. so if you have maybe you're, 
play pickleball with a partner or you go running or walking with a partner, you're on a, as an adult, you're on a soccer team or anything like that, how protective that is. And it is not just good for our physical health, obviously, but how really good it is for our mental health. And I think sometimes having you know, you almost it's a commitment device. Like when you know your friend's waiting for you to go for a walk or to play tennis or to do something that you're probably going to show up and rather than when we, we just do things by ourselves. It's true. Yeah. I could talk to you for hours, oh my by God. the way. Like I could like literally. Like, we I want to, I see make... that couch or that little chair behind you. <laughs> yeah, we could just snuggle up. <laughs> snuggle up, have a cocktail and start talking. I'd love it what are the ways to reduce stress? And one of the things, the reason I wanted to ask that question is because gratitude is something you mentioned. And for me, I have been in some stressful situations lately. And I have found that when I start to spiral, it is gratitude that I try to focus on rather than the stress. I try to find the silver lining in it. And that's, you know, Molly mentioned, we're both relatively positive people in the grand scheme of life. What are ways that you say people can reduce stress? Because we all have it. For sure. And I think that like probably a, a key, like simple way to think about it is first in like your, your, you know, stress is really when your demands, the demands on you like are exceed the resources that you feel that you have. Right. So the kind of just the basic, what I really got interested in and when I wrote this book was how when hassles sort of overpower the uplifts you're finding in your everyday life, like how do you boost your uplifts? Like we just are used to putting out fires all the time and playing that game of whack-a-mole. But that's, we often then, especially when we're feeling overwhelmed, we end up doing the opposite of what is going to help us feel strong. And we engage in like what I call like the vampires of vitality. Like that's when you, you know, you binge watch your TV shows, you cancel your plans with friends, you, you know, stay inside and you, you know, finish that bucket of ice cream. And so what I often talk about is when you are feeling stressed out, how, what does it mean to be on you? Like, you know, people are always telling us today, like, you always got to be yourself. And in general, it's a good idea, but not always. And I think especially when you're stressed out, like, what would be the un-you thing to do at this moment? Like, maybe it is to keep my plans. It is to go for that walk. It is to take care of myself in some way, because we sort of engage in this sort of, it's almost like emotional, like comfort food. Like we end up like eating this junk food rather than doing things that actually make us feel strong. And one way to, to consider we've seen this work across the board from like three-year-olds to 90-year-olds is to think about somebody who you really admire. What would they do right now? And maybe even have like a buffet table of like people who are exemplars in your life. And we've seen this like with little kids, if you say to your five-year-old, like what would Batman do right now? You know, that they're much more likely to like clean up their room or to help you in the kitchen, but also saying to like an adult, like who is somebody you admire? What would they do in this situation? And it has this amazing ability of kind of giving us perspective. And the second thing it does is it enables us to take an action in some way and then think, well, it's kind of suddenly like the, the clouds, you know, part in your, there's, there's a way through that we might not have seen in some way. And the number the, you know, the other like amazing kind of de-stressor we have is doing something for somebody else as we talked about. And a third one too is what Gabriel Otingen, who's at NYU, she talks about when you close your intention action gap and you create what she calls WOOP goals, W-O-O-P. And the W stands for like your, okay, your wish is that you wouldn't use your phone as much. And the outcome of that would be the O, this first O is that you'd spend more quality time with your kids. But the important part is the next O, which is what is the obstacle that is getting in your way here is preventing you from doing that. Well, it's always in my pocket. I'm always looking at it or it's always on the table. And the P part is, okay, what's your plan? How are you going to handle this? Because this is sort of tackles that positive thinking, just moment of like, oh, I just want to have a better relationship with my kids. This is asking you to close that intention, that action gap and asking you specifically, what are you going to do about that, that thing that you want? And once you've identified the obstacle getting in the way, you're much more likely then to be able to fulfill that. And so you have a very concrete plan of when I pick my kids up from school, I'm not, my phone's going to be in my handbag. You know, when we eat dinner together, it's not going to be on the table. So being able to create that whoop plan is really helpful and helps you feel like you're walking your walk. It holds accountability. 100%. Yes. I like that. 
love that. I just wrote it all out. Me I too. So good. Oh, this is a beauty episode and you're fabulous. Okay. <laughs> a little bit about your beauty routine because you're beautiful. What's the one product you can't live without? Ooh, McQueen Alexiotis' face serum. I love it. What's the one hair product that you are obsessed with? Oh, I love that Olaplex oil. Favorite foundation? Gosh, it's I don't use foundation. I don't like you. Without makeup on it? Wow. No, I use a ton of concealer, though. Okay, I mean, what's your I favorite probably concealer? Use my, the McQueen Alexiotis one. It's amazing. Oh, and that Gucci Westman, those sticks are life-changing. That is foundation, though. She's amazing. That Gucci. stuff is just joy. Favorite lip gloss or lip? That Aaron Rose lip tint. Favorite fragrance? And Tom Ford. Mm. Neroli, love that. Where do you shop? I'd say Moda and Revolve. If you could name your style in three words, what would it be? <laughs> oh my gosh. I, it's more than three words. I'd say Solid Gold Dancer. <laughs> Me, meets librarian. I don't know, but that's way too many words. I like it. You have great style. All right, we're going to do a little rapid fire. Favorite book? How to Change by Katie Milkman. Writing this it's down. excellent. She's a great, interesting woman. Your go-to cocktail. White wine spritzer. Your happiest win. Ah, I think when my values and actions overlap. Coffee or tea? Ooh, coffee with half and half. Most gratifying moment with a patient. I'd say when... You made me think differently about that when they tell me that, that I say, that they say that to me. If you could have another career, what would it be? A solid gold dancer. <laughs> One thing you would bring to a deserted island. Definitely my dog Panda and her, because she has an uncanny ability to sniff out food. What's your superpower? I think helping people see their strengths and find their superpower. Your biggest vice. Boxes of Maltesers, my favorite thing in the world. What's your biggest pet peeve? When somebody asks me, can I borrow your lip gloss? <laughs> oh. <laughs> the worst. We always ask every guest before they go, if you could give advice to your 10-year-old self, what would it be? Have a plan, but there's going to be a ton of off-roading, a lot of zigzagging, and prepare for that and embrace it. I love that. In your life or with your patients, you talk a lot about a plan. Is that because you want someone to have a plan and know the course so they could get on the course, get on the track, make the turns and go? Yes, what a, because I think it, when there's a plan, there's an action step and it sort of gets you out of this idea that I think that just having insights or ideas about something won't get you closer to where you wanna be. And so even I've had patients sort of have these moments of a sort of breakthrough, like, oh, that's why I do this, or that's why I like that. But that's just insight imperialism, because unless it's actually taking you to that place where you're actually, it's going to change what you're doing, it's not necessarily going to help. So that's where I feel like having an action plan is really valuable. Change is hard. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes you're just good the way you are. You know, and I think that's something to consider God, Samantha, as well. Dr. Boyman, I'm going to cry. I need therapy. <laughs> Everyday vitality, turning stress into strength. Dr. Boardman, Samantha, you are incredible. You guys, she's a badass. If you can get interned somehow, she sees you. You're lucky. Thank you, Emma Shaw and Molly. But if you can't, read her books and follow her incessantly. We love you. Samantha Boardman, you can follow her on Instagram at Dr. Samantha Boardman. Love where you're coming from and this idea of positive psychiatry. I almost wrote a book called Unstuck uh, because it's about getting in and getting out. And half of it is how you think of something, right? Someone said if you knew you were only going to spend the next 10 summers with your child maybe you might look at that differently or picking them up from school. You only have a certain number of times or whatever it is, is trying to reframe your thinking because it's so powerful. And that's where I think you 
help so many people and patients and this everyday vitality of like, you know, living your best life. How do we do that? How do we make that plan? How do we reset and start over? Amazing. Thank you. We'll see you next week. We're (laughs) available at three to four Eastern, 12 to one Pacific. No, but we love you. In the city tomorrow, I'm going to come by. I'll sit in that chair uninvited. (laughs) Thank you. We really appreciate you taking the time. And you guys, our listeners, it's her birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you for spending it with us. Yeah, thank you for spending it with us. We really appreciate everything. You're so smart. And I love that you can just quote everyone. It's like, I love when people like quote. It's like sexy. Thank you. It's fun. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you both. You were life enhancing. And I love love this podcast. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Lipstick on the Rim with Molly Sims and my ride or die, Amisha Gormley. We are always so excited to bring you guys along on this journey. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok at Lipstick on the Rim or my website where we just dive a little bit deeper into my favorite products, trends, and much, much more on mollysims.com. This podcast is a production with Dear Media. A special thanks to my team, Elizabeth Tawfield, Schaefer Carrillo, Ken Ryan, and Anna Sessions and everyone at Dear Media. Don't forget to listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss out on the fun. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.